Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and it's been a while since the last episode. Over a month. I've wanted to make space for other voices in the last month, especially as the momentum around Black Lives Matter continues and all important conversations around race keep happening in Canada, the United States, and around the world. It's been a heavy couple months. I'm sure you felt it too, especially after the wave of killings of black and indigenous people, among them George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Chantel Moore. We've seen protests, amazing displays of hundreds of thousands of people demanding change, calls for defunding the police, reallocating money into the community. But those people should still be alive. I'm in a very privileged position in this show. I get to ask people about their lives and hear it straight from the source. And before I might have thought it was enough to merely be curious, to be willing to listen, to be kind. I am learning what it means to be anti-racist and what it means as a white man to take up the mantle of work. I don't often talk about privilege and it's easy to forget, but what it means in my position is the privilege of comfort, of letting someone else bear the burden of speaking up of being quiet when you hear a racist joke or a sexist remark because saying something would be uncomfortable. I've fallen into that silence before. I know I have to do better, to be better. This country has to be better. Black and Indigenous people make up a combined 8% of the population but are underrepresented in newsrooms and boardrooms and drastically overrepresented in prisons and those shot and killed by police. 8% of Canada's population, yet 47% of the last 100 deaths from police shootings. This show is one place I've tried to do better in terms of representation. Still, I fall short. Most of the guests look like me. This week is no exception. But I want you to know I do want to hear from voices of all colors, all walks of life, and I pledge to do my best to make this a place people feel safe to come and talk. That is of utmost importance to me. With all this talk of identity, this week delves into a part of mine. I grew up a Mennonite, I still call myself a Mennonite, even if I don't see the inside of a church much beyond Christmas Eve. It's a cultural thing. It's the food. It's the pacifism, the hymnals, the global diaspora, the feeling of being different, the broad sense of community. My guest this week has come a long way from his small town home on the prairies. Cameron Duick is a writer and filmmaker based in Hong Kong. He's the author of two books. In his first, he sailed the Canadian Arctic. In this book, Menomoto, he travels the Americas 45,000 kilometers on a motorcycle to learn more about his Mennonite history. He looks into the seediest parts of its underbelly, the drug smuggling, the ghost rapes in Bolivia, and also the improbable stories of people uprooting themselves and finding a way. It's complex, but I guess that's identity for you. Here's his story. As one Mennonite to another, I have to start by asking, how good of a dancer are you? <laughs> pretty bad, pretty bad. <laughs> uh, I look like a farmer trying to stamp on mice or something. <laughs> uh, so, so Cameron, uh, you're from Menville, Manitoba, a s- small place not all that far away from Lake Winnipeg. How would you describe it to someone who's never been there? Well, you won't really know you're in a community when you're in Menville because it's pretty spread out. But there is a community. It's a bit more of a community of the mind in some ways. Um, it, there, it is a bit of a there's a church and a and a school and a and a couple of houses in a cluster. But it's a farming community um, near a town called Riverton. So our mailbox is about 25 kilometers from from our homes or from the center of Menville. Menville has no commercial. Uh, businesses at all. It's just, a, like I say, a small community built around a church. Uh, my father was one of the founding sort of members of the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a delightful place full of great people who supported each other through thick and thin. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. What was home like? What was your family like? It was a turkey farm that you grew up on, right? Yeah, grew up on a turkey farm. Um, I'm the youngest of seven kids. And uh, Wonderful, yeah, it was a wonderful place to grow up, wonderful family. We were a moderate Mennonite family, meaning that 
we had cars and radios and and stuff like that. No TV, no dancing, um, <laughs> but pretty moderate family. But church was very much central in our lives. And we went the school we went to was a small three room country school run by the church. Uh, in my year, there were three kids, all boys. I was always in the top three in our class, <laughs> and uh, it was a very it was a it was a ridiculously happy upbringing, to be honest. And mm. uh, my family, uh, yeah, I grew up in a great family, like you say, turkey farm. So that was, and we also had some grain. So grew up grew up doing farm stuff and, and playing outside and. And playing with ATVs and in the woods and all that sort of stuff. Did Menville feel small to you then, or was it just what was normal? Well, it was just normal. I mean, even going to town, going to the Riverton uh, in my early years was quite a quite an adventure because um, there were people that were not Mennonites there. Uh, in 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 Plotich, this language that Mennonites speak, we refer to non Mennonites as Veltmensch people right. of the world. Mm-hmm. And so if you went to Riverton, there were Veltmensch. Uh, there were people that smoked and they looked different and they and they spoke with a slightly different accent and they weren't Mennonites. And there were stores there. And so um, I guess we had a sense of Men- Menville being small because we certainly recognized the difference between our community of maybe, I don't know, it was around maybe 100 people or so uh, with the town of 500 people nearby. Um but uh, and growing up, and then later on in years when we'd go to the nearby city of Winnipeg and stuff, I think that's maybe when it dawned on me that I was from the Boondocks. Hmm. Um, and by the time I was in my teens and I was reading a lot, I was a, a big, big reader. And I think that's when it kind of dawned on me that I wanted to get out. Um, I I wasn't sure how, but I was very curious about the outside world. Hmm. What reputation did Veltmensch have as you were a kid? You know, preteens. What did you hear about them when you were growing up? Well, they were going to hell. That was the most important bit. Um, that's what we were taught. That mm-hmm. if you weren't, um, certainly if you weren't, if you weren't a church-going person, and there, in which church you went to made a pretty big difference as well. And so there was a lot of uh, Catholic was was very much that was you might as well not bother. Um, Lutheran maybe. Uh, so. Veltmensch were exotic. I remember, you know, traveling salesmen coming, the Amway dealer. You know, on the farm we would have agricultural product salesmen, chemical salesmen, whatever, these kind of guys that go from farm to farm. And I would want to be in the house and be nearby when they would be meeting with my dad because they were exotic. They were you could smell the tobacco on their clothes, you know. Sometimes the the men wore rings and jewelry, which was very exotic. Women with short hair, that was a novelty. Uh, and so they were from another uh, from another world might be exaggerating it, but they were very much outside of our daily realm. Mm. And so that's why when we would drive into the city, you know, I'd, I'd we'd pile all the kids into the big old car and and driving to the city, and I'd have my nose pressed up against the window, looking at out the window, and it wasn't as much at the at the buildings and all that, and the traffic. It was the people, uh, looking at the people, and, and just being in awe of these people that lived a totally different lives than us, life than us. We thought, really, really, our life wasn't that different. Uh, we lived a pretty normal life in, in hindsight, but we were taught we were different. We were told we were different. We were told that. We were outside of normal society. And if you're told that as a kid, you believe it. Hmm. You talked earlier about reading as a teenager. You used to steal books off of your older brother's nightstand. Uh, tell me a bit about that and where, where your love of stories began. Yeah, I stole, I would sneak two books. There's two books, Papillon and uh, Midnight Express, both which are pretty uh, spicy books for a young kid to be reading. <laughs> Uh, Midnight Express is a story about a, uh, I think, American guy who ends up in prison in Turkey for smuggling heroin, and Papillon is a story of a French underworld character who's in prison in the 1920s, I believe. Um, I yeah, I read a lot. We didn't have a TV, and uh, there I was the so I was the youngest of seven, and I was very much the youngest. My my older siblings were all much older than me, and so I spent a lot of time alone. 
um, growing up. And so I read a lot and, and I loved adventure books like, like every boy, I guess. Um, but you know, outdoor adventure lost in the Barrens was a huge, huge favorite of mine. Mm. Um, and when I, as a young kid, I, in, I don't remember which class it would have been, must've been an English class or something. We were, we had to make, write our own books, write our own stories and then, and then illustrate them and bind them into books and stuff. And I, I did this job with great enthusiasm and I wrote two books, both of which were uh, stories of heroism and adventure and alienation from the family. And I, at that age, had a real uh, flair for, for uh, storytelling, I guess, mm. and, and, and dr- drama. And so, yeah, stories and reading have been a big part of my life. Do you still have those books somewhere? Yep, I do. They're in my bookshelf. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, as you're a kid, you know, seven, eight years old, what kind of future did you see for yourself? I guess I must have seen a future on the farm because I didn't really know anybody that did anything else. I had, we had two aunties that were nurses and they lived in the city and they, they were single, uh, what seemed to be much late, very late in their life. But I think they married in their early forties or late thirties maybe, mm-hmm. but, um, they were, they were nurses. And so they, that was a life they were living a very exotic, very cosmopolitan life in our minds because they were living in the city and, and working as nurses. Um, and when you're saying city here, are you saying Riverton or, or Winnipeg? Winnipeg? Yeah, Winnipeg city, town is Riverton. Gotcha, yeah. Um, and so uh, I knew my brothers uh, were becoming farmers and everybody around me was a farmer or a welder or you know working within the agricultural industry in some way, I think. And... Um, it wasn't until I was sort of in my late teens that I really started thinking about these things. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to go have adventure and stuff, but I never really thought that far ahead of that, what I would do or and or what kind of life I would live. And I quite dis- distinctly remember a conversation I had, uh, a few conversations. One is, I think, depicted in the one I think I describe in my book, um, where we were on the farm and, and breakdowns on the field. And I describe to my father, I tell my father that I, I really never want to be a farmer. Right. And that was more out of sort of teenage angst that that was said. Um, but then when I, I think I was 19, uh, my father was retiring and the farm was sort of being taken over by my brothers. And there was an opportunity for me to, to slot in and to become a partner in the farm. And um, I, I very dis- distinctly remember the conversation. My father and I were working outside, and he talked to me about it very seriously. You know, these were business matters to be discussed, and whether I wanted in, and now is the time to make up my mind. And and I just I said no. I just knew um, it made me sick to my stomach to say it because it just I knew I was disappointing him, hmm. uh, and I knew it was a monumental decision. Because uh, it was a very secure life to be on the farm, uh, both financially and socially, and because it was run by the family, and I knew I could have a very good life on the farm. But I knew deep down that I I didn't want that, and um, it it made me kind of sick to tell my father that I knew that it was a big decision. I knew that this was a kind of a important inflection point in life, and. Um, and he took it pretty hard. He he cried. He became emotional. Um, he got tears in his eyes when I told him that I do not want to be part of this farm. I want a different life. And he took that as quite an insult, I think. Uh, and I think, I think maybe it took him a while to get over it as well. But he was mm-hmm. disappointed whenever. I mean, I, I have other another brother that didn't become a farmer, and I know that my father um, wished that we would have all stayed on the farm. Hmm. So. How did you become a storyteller then? What what was sort of your, um, you know, your your first adventure, if you will? Well, I didn't really. So I I didn't know about journalism, and I didn't, you know, even though I was a big reader, I never really thought about the fact that people were writing these books, uh, and that they were out there doing things that they would then write about, um, and so I did quite badly in high school. I wasn't a great student. And my English teacher, I give great, great credit to her, Mrs. Ailson, uh, she, she spotted in me that I was you know, a, a competent writer and storyteller, I guess, and communicator. And so she 
upon kind of upon graduation, I remember it was, I think it was in spring of the last year of school. She pulled me aside and, and she was a, she was my home home class teacher. And so she knew that my grades weren't stellar. And she said, you should do something with your writing. And I think she, she mentioned journalism and I really didn't, we didn't get daily newspapers at home. We never discussed the news, no news magazines. Journalism wasn't within our vocabulary really. Hmm. And, uh, so I started investigating it and I think I just kind of looked it up and read a little bit about what journalists actually did. And I thought, and there was emphasis that journalists traveled and went to places and I thought, well, that sounds good. And so I pursued that and, uh, and, uh, went to, ended up going to journalism school and, and, um, getting a job and becoming a journalist and, and very quickly, I, my, my goal was very much to get out of Manitoba, get out of Canada. And a lot of my friends in school were getting jobs, really great jobs with the CBC and all this sort of thing. And my goal was always to go further afield. And, mm. uh, yeah. What was your first job at a journalism school? So I, my dad had a deal with all those kids that if we went to Bible college, he'd pay all the bills and give us a car to drive. Mm-hmm. And so right out of high school, I didn't know at first what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew about the journalism thing, but I, I really didn't know how to go about it. And so I went to Bible college for a year. And um, at the Bible college, I worked at the, at the newspaper, at the, at the college newspaper. And that's where I think I got a little bit drunk on the, on the power of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I I, I'm also, I think probably people would probably say I, I, I'm a bit of an antagonist in some ways, maybe sometimes. And I really enjoyed interviewing teachers and the, you know, the presidents of the college and stuff and being able to ask what I thought were tough questions. And that really whetted my appetite for it. So then after that, uh, after a year of that, I decided I'd, I'd had enough Baba college and I wanted to go to journalism school. Um, and so uh, I went, had to go work construction for a year to get some money together, and then I went to journalism school. So I don't remember really. I remember I remember having an interview with the president of the Baba College, and I remember being um, confrontational enough that I got scolded for it afterwards. And I don't remember <laughs> what I asked him, but I I remember I felt a great sense of of achievement in having done that for some yes. reason that's as a journalist you have to have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder perhaps sometimes right um, because that's the job is to go after uh, the truth and 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 shine light into places where people don't want light shone and so uh, and i haven't you know i, I was a financial journalist uh, i didn't uh, cover i have never broken any big dark secrets in my life really unfortunately but I, did, I always enjoyed the, the questioning part of it. And I always enjoyed the, the fact that as a journalist, you get to speak to people you would never speak to otherwise. And who would never speak to you otherwise? Uh, you get to sit down with people who make decisions. Right. And you get to question them on them. And that is a, that's a huge privilege, I think. Did you, have you kept any of those early clippings from when you were a, you know, a Bible college uh, writer? I think I probably have some of them somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I probably somewhere, but I, I haven't really thought much about it over the years. Yeah. Right. Be- before everything became online anyway. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember working at the, I then worked at the Interlake Spectator, which is a, a local paper, which I think is shut down now and uh, out of Gimli, Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And that was my first summer job at a newspaper. And, uh, I remember getting one of the, one of the perks of the job was I had to interview, I think it was a new fire chief or something. And I got to drive the fire truck and blow the horn on main street of Gimli. And so that was probably the first time when, uh, I enjoyed the, uh, the perks of journalism. So your goal being a journalist was to get out of Canada. Where, where did you end up going first? I went to Chicago, um, because I, my first job out of, out of college was covering uh, agricultural commodities in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. the Winnipeg Commodity Exchange. And then that landed me a job at the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, working for a newswire covering the commodities market. So it was very unglamorous um, in terms of what I was writing about. And uh, a lot of my friends were kind of, I think, 
a lot of my journalism friends kind of sneered at it. They were, they were getting into the real meaty stuff of journalism and I was going off on a very different track, but it was a way out. Uh, that's how I saw it as a way into the States. Any kid that's growing up in Canada understands that getting a job in the States is, you know, it's a kind of a, it's a prize. And, um, and so I moved to Chicago and I was still incredibly naive when I moved to Chicago. I, I moved. I, I went there for the interview, and I just remember being gobsmacked at the city. Just really amazed, walking around these big buildings and and all this. And and I showed up at my interview completely decked out in a suit, and I was sweating. And it was summer, and and I think my editor kind of thought it was I don't know probably cute. And when I showed up, came and moved there for work. Um, for the first couple of weeks, I didn't use the the L train, the, the metro system to get mm-hmm. into the office because I had never been on a city bus in my life until I moved to Chicago, never mind a train. And the bus, when I rode the bus, I could look out the window and, you know, it was pretty became clear pretty quickly. If you press the button, the bus would stop at the next available stop and you could get off. Mm-hmm. And I felt that gave me a sense of control of where I was going and how I was getting there. But then on the train, um, for, in, in hindsight, it sounds really idiotic, but <laughs> I found the train very intimidating because uh, I don't know. I just didn't. I, I don't even know if I, I mean, needed to make changes, but I just found it very. And so it took me a couple of weeks to uh, build up the courage to take the train to work, which was much more convenient than taking the bus. And um, I was very naive and very, uh, very much wet behind the ears when I arrived in Chicago. And luckily, I had a boss uh, named Roz Krasny who took me under her wing and she was Australian and she'd grown up on a farm in Australia and I think she kind of knew what was going on. She could see what I was uh, dealing with and she kind of coached me through life for the first few months. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your book, uh, Menomoto, that came out this year. Uh, I mean, this this one, you've had plenty of projects before. You've, you've sailed China's coastline, taken part in Abu Dhabi ocean racing, you know, search for dinosaurs, sailed through Canada's Arctic, but but this book was in the works for seven years, right? Um, why did you want to write this one? I wanted to write this book because it's the story that I've been telling since I left. It's every every city I've lived in, every bar I've been to, you know, the the stories I've told have be probably been a bit repetitive. Um, People ask you, you know, where did you grow up? What's your last name? Where's mm-hmm. where's that last name from? And then I'd pitch into this story about growing up Mennonite on a turkey farm and in the Canadian prairies. And the further away I got from the Canadian prairies, the more exotic that story became. And I realized that uh, that I had a relatively unique story um, and background, and I think a relative, I think, is, is the term. Everybody has an interesting backstory, and everybody has an interesting family history. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, this was the story I kept explaining to people what Mennonites were, and, and um, outside of you know the prairies and, and maybe you know central U.S., it's it's not a well-known cultural group. And so I decided I want to write a book about it. And I I had previously done a motorcycle trip across China. Um, with a couple of friends and that was the first time I'd ever done any travel on a motorcycle and I really liked it. I really liked how the, the motorcycle put you in the middle of everything and left you exposed to everything. You can hear things, smell things, hear the children playing and shouting at you and you can smell the cooking fires and all this sort of thing. And yet you can travel big distances uh, at, at speed. And so the, I had this dream of driving a motorcycle through the Americas for many years and uh, probably from reading, you know, Che Guevara's book. Um, and then I sort of, the more I kind of thought about it, the more I realized all these Mennonite colonies in the Americas. And so there were kind of three things, I guess, the the motorcycle thing, knowing there were all these Mennonites that I didn't had never met and, and didn't know anything about. And the fact that I'd been, telling this story all these years and realized that people didn't really know much about contemporary Mennonite culture and that maybe I'd be the, I should, I'd be the right person to tell the story. Hmm. Um, and there was, I think a big, in that when I stayed telling that story in all these different countries, there was a big identity aspect of that. I think where that's 
you know, when you're in a foreign city surrounded by people from, you know, you know, maybe at a dinner table with people from 10 different countries, um, everybody has their own kind of brand they put out. And I don't mean that in any kind of bad way, but you know, you have your, you have your story you tell in, in, in first meetings with people. Right. And, um, and I started wondering, you know, I would talk, talk about Mennonites and, you know, we come from Russia and there was a religion, but it was a culture as well. And, and I started, the, the, the longer I stayed away, the more I traveled, I started wondering how accurate that still was, how much I, how much ownership I really still had over that identity. And so that was a big piece of it, of going on the trip. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned culture and identity, and, and, and that could be such a complex thing, you know, how we see ourselves, and, and that can change, too. Um, how did you relate to being Mennonite? How did that factor into your identity, you know, as a teen or 20-something, or when you're looking to get out and see the world? As a teen, yeah, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it was something I didn't really question uh, for many years and within Mennonite culture there's very much a tradition I would say of if, if you're if you don't stay close to it then you run away from it uh, there's kind of a, a tradition of not being ambivalent about it or you know you, you have to either you have to pick one or the other you can't be ambivalent about it hmm. um, and you can't be and so I wouldn't say I ran away from it really. I mean, there's a term in, in plot each. It's called, it's off you follow off. You follow means that you've fallen away from the church. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very much a spiritual term, but it's also, it, it means you've left the community and I never felt off you follow. I never considered myself off you follow, uh, because I, I didn't, I didn't have any animosity towards it. I didn't, I wasn't rejecting it. I just wanted to go see what else was out there. Right. And so, I've never had a, even though I've left the community, left the church, I've, I've, uh, I've never felt a very strong aversion to it. Um, and so um, my feeling of it uh, growing up, I didn't have very strong feelings. I mean, it was just until I realized that it made me kind of unique. And that was probably when I moved to New York and stuff. That's Or not made me unique, but that it was a unique character feature or a unique story I could tell. Until I learned how to capitalize on it, I guess. Mm. Um, I never really considered it. I never really thought about it that much. Until until uh, being Mennonite becomes exotic, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Until, you know, when you're sitting around the table and there's people from, you know, that have multiple ethnic backgrounds that they can draw upon and who have grown up, you know, parents. You know, when you're in an international journalism circle, it tends to draw, you know, diplomat brats and... and uh, things like you know, people like that. A lot of the people that are sort of moving around the, the Reuters and New York Times and Financial Times and, and, and Associated Press and these sort of international news agencies, a lot of the staff tend to have pretty international upbringings. And I was a farm kid from Manitoba who never, <laughs> even, went to, never even went to university, right? And so I, I <laughs> maybe that's why I started really taking ownership of the identity because I wanted my own sort of exotic story to tell. I don't know. So the plan with this motorcycle ride, or maybe there wasn't the plan initially, but it just unfolded this way. You traveled 45,000 kilometers across 19 countries. I mean, that's a long, long way to go on a motorcycle. There, what were you looking for? There are straighter roads between Manitoba and Argentina than the one I took. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I... So, like I say, it was the the trip was very much uh, an adventure. I, I really wanted to just go see part of the world. It, it the, part of the trip came about because another project had fallen through. I planned another project, totally unrelated, and uh, funding for it fell through. And so then I decided this was had been something had been hatching in the back of my mind for many years. And I figured I would, I got to do something. I'll do this. And so I was looking for an adventure. And so uh, I kind of zigzagged all my way, all the way down and, um, had never really been to Central America and South America before. And so that I'd been spending all my time in Europe and Asia. And, um, so I was looking for an adventure and I was looking for the communities. I, I planned, spent a bit of time planning beforehand, researching where the Mennonite colonies were. Um, I was specifically looking for colonies of Mennonites that had come from Russia in, 
around the same time my family had come. And that mm-hmm. that encompasses most of them. Most of the colonies in Latin America can draw their their uh, heritage back to the migration of Mennonites from Russia in the 1870s uh, and to Canada. So most of the Mennonites in, in Latin America came or their parents or their grandparents came from Canada at some point. And so I knew that my... So I, I knew my Mennonite history. I knew the story going to Canada, that ended up in Canada where my family lived. But then I knew there was this, these people that had carried this Mennonite identity and culture on to a whole other series of migrations and countries and, and mutations. And I wanted to see kind of where the culture had gone beyond that, the place that I knew had been. And so that's what drove my, my, my uh, planning, my route planning. I circled all the colonies and uh, I drove from, I didn't go to all of them, but I went to a lot of them and um, certainly all the big ones and, and kind of the more important, historically important ones. And more and more as the trip went on, I went to the colonies where people in previous colonies had given me names of people. So they'd say, mm. oh, you know, I've got an uncle that lives in, you know, down in, in Belize. Go to, you know, go to Blue Creek. I know this guy there or whatever. And... So then I would just kind of link them up and time was very quickly, like the trip ended up being, I think, almost twice as long as I planned it. And that was just because curiosity got the better of me. And I just thought, well, I'm here, I'm on the bike. Uh, I probably am never going to do this again. I might as well just go for it all the way. And so that's, I think initially when I planned the trip, I thought it would be around 20,000 kilometers. And it ended mm-hmm. up being 40, 45. And all of that, about, I, I figure about at least 10,000 of that was on dirt roads. What is a dirt road like to ride on a motorcycle? <laughs> Depends if it's rained or not. <laughs> um, it's, uh, well, so I had, a, I had a, what's considered a dual sport bike, a Kawasaki KLR650. So it's like a big dirt bike. Um, and uh, so it was okay on gravel and on dirt. Uh, there was a few trip, there were a few sections that were, pretty remarkable uh, the, the dirt came into play much more in south america than anywhere else and uh i was crossing the chaco and that was that became an epic day of riding um because uh the i was leaving from bolivia from around santa cruz and cutting across to philadelphia in paraguay and uh the road that i was taking had it was under construction but it wasn't they had not completed construction so they'd torn up the tarmac they'd torn up the the pavement but then ha- and then unseasonable unseasonal rains had fallen and it was like heavy rain for for uh, i think a week or two and so the road was just a disaster and the the soil in the Chaco is like, it's very silty. So it was basically like riding through, you know, three or four inches of like bacon grease. It was mm. unbelievable. And uh, <laughs> I remember early, it was only a, it was a one day ride. It was a full day. I left at dawn and I arrived in Philadelphia kind of late in the day. And I, it, the first time the bike fell over. Uh, I, I, I cursed and, and was angry about it probably the first three three times. And then I realized that there was just not much I could do about it. And it just became a, a kind of a humorous play in the mud. And uh, that that ride sticks out in my mind in terms of riding dirt roads just because I fell off again and again and again just because it was so slick, so much mud. And there was no traffic. I, I don't think I saw another car all day. Hmm. Uh, driving through the Chaco, I mean, there's just not a lot of traffic, especially on roads that everybody else probably knew that that road was unpassable, but no one told me. <laughs> uh, what was your what was your riding setup like? What did you carry with you over these uh, 19 countries? Well, my inventory list went down drastically the, <laughs> with every mile. Uh, I was crazy overloaded when I took off with um, camping gear. I carried a full set of camping gear, cooked you know, cook stove, everything. Uh, I carried quite a few cameras and a laptop and recorders. Um, I carried toolkits. Spare. I even carried some, you know, small spare parts. I quite often had a spare tire strapped across the back. I carried clothing for hot and cold weather, and it was good because up in the mountains, I'd be freezing and shivering and putting on fleeces. But then, you know, riding along the seaside in the Caribbean or wherever, it was hot. And um, 
so I had two big panniers, uh, one on each side, obviously, mm -hmm. and then a big rubber duffel bag across the back. So the bike was very heavily loaded. Uh, I could still pick it up when it fell over, but barely. Hmm. So you set out, you're on this black motorcycle, black helmet, black jacket, black shades. I mean, if, if there's a way to ride a motorcycle, you pick the most Mennonite way to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what, uh, was that intentional? What, uh, like, uh, there's got to be hot in the well, sunny weather like that. You don't, you don't buy a pink jacket to ride a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was hot. I, in hindsight, I, I've learned this now. I would, uh, my helmets now are all white because I live in Hong Kong where it's hot. And I learned that a black helmet cooks your brain. Um, but yeah, it was very hot. And, uh, I, I think if the stuff was on sale, that's probably why I bought it. Um, it was not a, there was no strategic planning to that. It was just, I knew, I, I knew I wanted to wear proper riding gear because, uh, your mother is right. Riding a motorcycle is very dangerous. Uh, I, I had a few pretty bad crack ups and I was very lucky to be wearing full riding gear with, you know, body armor. Um, and I didn't break any bones, but, but I got bashed up pretty good a couple of times. Mm. And so, um, I had one, one accident in Brazil where it was my first day. I just entered Brazil from Paraguay and uh, I was driving down a highway and I was, it was kind of a case where we're doing, you know, 110 or so and everybody was still doing 110, but we were approaching a town. So the road was getting busier and the traffic was getting heavier. And so I was getting far too close to the car in front of me. And on a motorcycle, you need a lot more braking distance than you do in a car. And, Suddenly, the car veered to the side with you know screeching tires and veered into the onto the shoulder, and I had no time to do anything. And in front of me was a truck that was stopped, and it had happened a few times previously on the trip where it had to lock up my rear tire, and that howl of rubber it was a sound that kind of made me sick to my stomach. Hmm. I had heard it a few times. I knew that when my tire was howling, I was in trouble, and this time. I didn't even, the tire didn't have to, time to howl. It just chirped. And that's the last thing I, that was the last thing in my consciousness. I woke up long, I don't know how much later, but enough later that all the emergency services had shown up. I woke up looking up at all these people looking down at me with great concern in their face. They're all wearing, you know, orange vests and, and emergency clothing or whatever. And I couldn't understand anything they were saying. And I was, uh, I, I didn't speak Spanish when I started the trip, and I still don't speak it, but I'd learned enough at that point that I could kind of understand what was being said, and I could answer simple questions. And here, suddenly, I couldn't understand anything anyone was saying, and and I was very confused. I'd been knocked out, obviously. That made me confused as well. And and um, long story short, I mean, I was I was I was concussed, and I was but I was okay. And I, I uh, a biker came along and helped me along. I had to end up paying the truck because I hit him from behind, and I had no insurance, and my bike actually wasn't even registered anymore at that point. Uh, I'd canceled my insurance back in Manitoba because I realized if anything happened, uh, I wouldn't be able to make a claim anyway. So I just mm -hmm. canceled it, and and so I was uninsured and basically illegal on the road in Brazil, and so. I, the cops were there and they said we could arrest you, but you could pay this guy for some of his damages. So I gave him all the cash I had on hand, which I think was about 150 bucks. Um, but the I, I caved in the end gate of the truck, tore off the bumper, um, a lot of that with my body. And so I was very, very sore the next day, but I hadn't broken anything. And I put and, <laughs> and although I although I had been, I mean, I broke my bike pretty bad. Yeah. But uh, wearing proper riding gear is important. Uh huh. Yeah. Moral of the story: Wear your helmet. Yeah, yeah. So you're going across these countries, these these Central and South American countries, and and I think you know to many people, unless maybe you're a Mennonite already, the notion of there being these Mennonite colonies in Mexico, in Belize, in Paraguay, in Bolivia, it's it's a bit surprising. It's a bit of like a fish out of water kind of scenario. Um, what what kind of assumptions did you hold about these colonies uh, maybe before going and and uh, how did they change or or if they stayed the same um i think my assumptions were my were not far off the mark uh i expected to find people that had a lot of similarities to what i thought of as mennonites in, in southern manitoba but a bit more conservative and that was generally the case um 
because the reason that these colonies are formed is twofold. One, that the Mennonites are looking for land. Uh, and secondly, that they want to become more removed from society around them because they feel it's sinful. So it tends to be the most conservative people move on to create new colonies. And so it only makes sense that they're more conservative than the sort of the mother community back in Canada. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it is very odd when you're driving through Belize or Bolivia and these countries are developing, they, you know, you can, the poverty is quite evident, the roads are bad, uh, the people are all brown-skinned or, or, or black or they're Latino or whatever, and suddenly you, the road gets smooth, the buildings are nicer, and everybody's white, and then you know you've arrived in a colony. And, um, and I'm not exaggerating, it really is like that. Like, it's just, you really just cross a border and... Uh, no one generally the Mennonites do not allow, allow outsiders to live on the colony they could come in for day work but they don't live on the colony and the colonies can be huge I mean they're like they're big areas and so it's really it is really strange uh, to suddenly pull into a community where while everybody around you is speaking Spanish all the the whole country around them is speaking Spanish Suddenly you come to this community and you want to check into a hotel and you're doing it in German and you order your meal at a restaurant in German. Um, and so it is very different. And I think what did I, you know, how did my assumptions change? I think I realized that just like I have claimed my Mennonite identity through the years and probably some people would say, well, you're not really Mennonite anymore because you, you know, you live in a tiny flat in Hong Kong and, you don't go to a Mennonite church and you don't farm and how can you consider yourself Mennonite? Um, but I do consider myself culturally Mennonite. <clears throat> and I think I, one of the things that I learned along the trip was that Mennonite has a lot of definitions and yes, there, there's a lot of similarity between them all, but just like the people in Bolivia living on a colony where you know some really dark, unspeakable things have happened with the the incest and the rapes, and I would say you don't. In my in my anger, I would say you don't deserve to call yourself a Mennonite uh, if you do that kind of thing under the name of the church, or not under the name of the church, but then cover it up under the name of the church and things like this. You know, that's we we shouldn't consider you one of ours. Um, but yet they're Mennonites, and they and they yeah, of course they fully deserve to be able to use that label, and so. When you claim a cultural identity for yourself, everybody else that claims that same identity has a slightly different version of it. And that became very real to me with each colony I visited. And I'd often ask people, what does it mean to be Mennonite? And, and, and their definitions usually were very faith-based. But watching, you know, seeing their lifestyle and stuff, I could see that everybody has a slightly different version of it. You mentioned Bolivia there, probably the most hot-button place when it comes to Mennonite colonies. You know, a place where eight men are serving sentences for raping more than 130 women. What did you want to find there? What piqued your curiosity or your journalistic nose to go there and, you know, meet with the people involved and affected? Well, I knew I couldn't. I, I knew I couldn't. I, I knew I couldn't uh, avoid it. I, I, I couldn't uh, miss that part out. I mean, if I was driving through the Americas, uh, and I was trying to kind of hit on a lot of the bigger sort of popular stories about Mennonites. In Mexico, there was a water issues and drug smuggling and land issues and stuff like this and environmental things. And so I knew that I, I really needed to go visit this community in Bolivia. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I knew that I really needed to go visit this place in Bolivia. And so when I arrived there, I really didn't know a lot about the story because a lot of what has been reported on it has been quite, uh, I wouldn't say misreported, but it's been quite thin in terms of telling the, the full story, I think. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I went to, to, to find out myself, and I found some people who were fairly involved with the case uh, who could introduce me to, to the men in the prison and some of the families involved. I, I was never able to interview any of the women who had been raped, um, and I regret that uh, because I asked, and, and no one would kind of introduce me to them. And, 
And I think if I'd been a woman, it would have been easier uh, to, to get access to them. But as a strange man, even though coming, even though being Mennonite, as a, as a, as a man they didn't know coming into the colony, it was very hard to get access to them. Um, but it was a, a much more complicated story than I first thought it would be. Initially, when I arrived, I thought, right, I'm going to investigate this and get down to the bottom of it and find out what the truth is. And I think what I learned was that there, there is, a, I mean, there is a truth, but there isn't a truth. There's been so many lies told that sometimes the lies and their impact are more important than the truth itself, in a way, if that makes sense. Uh, and it's, it's become this whole web of, of layers of lies and, and silence and misrepresentation. And I think that that uh, that says a lot about the culture as well and things that we probably don't like to conf- be confronted with, perhaps. But the, the, the time there was very, it was depressing. It was depressing to be talking to these people and to be hearing their stories and to see that nothing had really changed. That was the saddest part. All of this stuff had gone on. And yes, there were guys in prison, but really, if you read about it in the book, you know, the guys in... The guys in prison that didn't that didn't solve the problem. That didn't that wasn't uh, wasn't really the root of it, and the root of it never really got addressed from from what I could see. And that mm. was the saddest part uh, that there was still this this sense of uh, just be quiet and don't let this get outside of the community kind of feeling. How are you received uh, in other colonies? You know, if if always you're this guy, you know, coming in. I know you got personal connections here and there. You can kind of get a foot in but a stranger to people coming in and talking and asking questions in a way that may not be used to what was that like it was like being a journalist <laughs> <laughs> i mean as a journalist you I, you get used to this feeling of being an outsider uh and so it's, I feel, i'm quite comfortable in that role i guess and yeah i very much would arrive as the outsider and people would be slightly suspicious of me but mennonites tend to be very welcoming of their own as soon as you know they would hear that i was from Canada and had family in different uh, important Mennonite uh, communities in Canada, and I could speak the language, uh, although poorly, but I could speak it, and I could crack a few, you know, simple jokes, uh, self-deprecating jokes. Mennonites love those, and so it was quite easy to kind of beyond after the first ten minutes, I could kind of get in. Um, some the more conservative the community was, the more suspicious they were of me, of course, because the further I was from from them culturally and socially. Um, but I, I made good friends and I, I think in some places I, you know, I felt very warmly received, uh, by the time I left, stayed in a lot of people's homes. Uh, there was many times where I'd be, you know, tucked up in a, in a guest room underneath a quilt and, and the smells of, you know, the slightly musty quilt and the feeling of the homemade quilt and the, everything. I felt like I was at my grandma's house. Uh, mm. And there was real feelings of nostalgia sometimes. The food, you know, sitting down to, to a meal. I remember there was one meal in Patagonia, um, one of the last colonies I visited. And um, it was a Saturday night. And, and this was an old colony, so meaning very quite conservative. No electricity, no, no cars. And... So Saturday night is preparing for the Sabbath. So you slow down. It's a simple meal so that you don't have to do a lot of work for the meal. And she made rier, which is like a scrambled pancake, basically, and a few side dishes with that. And it was just exactly like my mother would have made. It was exactly the meal my mother would have made. Uh, and sitting there and was talking to this family, and the, the, the mother of the household had just lost her mother. And I lost my mother a couple of years previously. And so we were talking about this and there was just this really strong, warm bond. And it was just very interesting to think that, well, here I am in Patagonia, thousands of miles from home, sitting around a table with a family I'd never met before. Uh, I had met them, I think, I think I'd arrived a day earlier, a day or two earlier. So I'd had some time with them to get to know them. But really, and I was, I was sleeping in a tent. I was sleeping in my tent in their yard. I sometimes did that if I felt that a little bit more distance would be good. Hmm. Um, so I was sleeping in a tent, but going in for meals and and uh, sitting at a table. And it, it was just this very warm, welcoming feeling, but it really drove home this idea of this diaspora across the Americas of Mennonites. And here we were talking about 
you know, a very personal loss and eating foods that I really associated with my own mother and my own family and upbringing. And uh, it was a very beautiful evening, very beautiful moment for me. And really a moment that kind of brought a lot of the searching home, you know, all the searching I had done on this trip. And then I ended up at a table that could have been my mother's table in Patagonia. Hmm. After all these travels, you know, the the 45,000 kilometers, uh, did you feel more Mennonite, less Mennonite? Uh, or, or how did it change how you viewed uh, yourself and, and how you related to uh, your culture and history? I don't know if I felt more or less Mennonite, but I felt more entitled to call myself a Mennonite. Uh, I felt, like I say, like this feeling that every, and it, this is not just about Mennonites, it's about anyone where you have a cultural background, an ethnic background, and if you leave you know, your family's community or if you move, you know, move to another country or whatever, sometimes you become more distant from that identity and yet uh, that's part of you and, and I, maybe you don't feel as confident calling yourself using that cultural label over the years, but really that is more part of you than you probably realize. And I think a lot of people feel that. A lot of people uh, wonder about their background. Not everybody gets to go on a crazy journey like this to research it. But I think that's one maybe truth in the book or one 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 story in the book that um, a lot of people can relate to this idea that you have a cultural identity within you and, and sometimes it's further away and sometimes it's closer and you know, how much of it do you own and how much of how much of it is really true and how much of it is just in your mind. And I think at the end of the trip, I realized that I was fully correct in calling myself a Mennonite. I very much am a Mennonite and I'm very proud to be a Mennonite and uh, that it's a beautiful culture and a beautiful diaspora that I'm very proud to, to be affiliated with. Uh, still don't want to farm, though, I'm guessing. <laughs> still don't want to farm. I've been trying to farm on my little balcony here in Hong Kong, and it's not going well, I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, Cameron, thanks so much for, for sharing your story. It was a pleasure speaking with you and, and reading your book, too. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Cameron, his book, Menomoto, is in stores now. It's out through Biblioasis in Canada. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. More episodes on the way in the coming weeks. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.